Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. I'm Claire Crunk, founder and CEO of Trace Femcare, and we're making menstrual products with hemp fiber and cotton that is grown with regenerative farming methods. Um, and our first product is a menstrual tampon. So um, I've been in the hemp fiber world for a few years, and there are several several folks here today who have been my mentors um, and who've taught me so much, and we've kind of come up together two on trying to crack the, the nut on how to get the proper type of fiber extracted uh, to make these sorts of products. So along the way, I've, you know, of course, learned about hygiene product manufacturing, but also through osmosis have learned about yarn production and apparel manufacturing, some on the composite side, some on herd offtake side, um, et cetera. So in general, what I was hoping we could cover today is how can we um, roadmap and how can we strategize getting a hemp fiber product, a finished good, into the market. Um, and so I, you know, Trace, we make consumer goods. And I know in the hemp industry, there's a lot of B2B, um, a lot of, you know, supply chain selling to manufacturers that eventually the manufacturer will make it into a finished good for a brand like ours. Um, but right now, it really does take all hands on deck at the table at the same time. So I did want to ask before we got into our first question, um, if just to figure out who all is here, if there's anybody here that is trying to make a finished good with hemp fiber or interested in that, I would love for you to drop it in the chat and let us know what kind of product you're looking for, if you're ready to announce that or, or publicize that. Um, or, you know, if you're a grower or a processor, um, an ancillary, et cetera, just to know who all is here. So I'm kind of curious about obviously where I'm focused and we've got a lot of farmers on here and there's this discussion about, you know, being profitable in our farmers, you know, for our farmers and what type of fiber is actually needed to take product to market and what the difference is kind of in the discussion um, with Joel that he just said, you know, the material waste compared to this high-end material product. And what does it take for us to bridge that gap? So sure. there's a good hour for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, for real. Um, so this is a huge challenge because I think our ideal is that we could have a whole plant utilization um, and have offtakes of processing for end-use products fairly in a straightforward manner. Um, but anybody who has grown uh, fiber hemp or tried to process it knows that, you know, producing um, a hempcrete material and an apparel grade fiber from the same acreage right now is not within the realm of possibility in the state of the art of processing and genetics that we have. So this is why it is so critical to know your end use, what you're growing for before you have that conversation with anybody who's going to pay anything coming out of your field. Um, and right now, you know, we're all in our infancy. Um, we're all novices 
There are a few like experts here, but mostly in the U.S. we're novices. Um, and so it really does take um, ground level before you even do your field prep discussion with that end buyer. So who is purchasing your material? There are a lot of people out there that are going to say to a grower, I'm going to buy your material, but they don't know where they're going to sell it yet. Um, and they don't know what that end use market is going to be yet. So we've seen, uh, you know, over the years where folks have made those promises, not understanding that in manufacturer, that converter need, converting need, um, and then they have fiber that's unusable. So, um, you know, when you're choosing your varietal at Trace, we use all Chinese cultivars right now. Um, so until we can get some different varieties that are validated and proven out to produce that really high quality fiber, that's what we're selecting. So, you know, what's the shortest point between two lines? What do we know works now? And then cultivating it and harvesting it in a way that lends itself to produce good separable fiber from the herd. That's important because every in-use product needs a clean fiber input. So there's no such thing. I've not yet seen any fiber product that can accept a high herd contamination. Um, and in order to get full separation of that herd and fiber, it matters how, you know, the genetics you choose, how you cultivate it and how you harvest it and handle it out of the field. So, um, you know, that's part of the reason why you have to know before you plant and then same with genetics. So this is where we've been really lucky as a brand to have some background info on that um, and to pull it through from the final product needs and understanding how the final product performance needs and manufacturing requirements trickle down into even the soil. Okay, so I have a question. There's a topic, obviously, within our own industry on the policy that's being put forward for certified seed versus a hemp fiber and grain exemption, right? Mm -hmm. Can you kind of speak to the certified seed, um, you know, or lack of certified seed that you're, you're using or the need in order to start utilizing a certified seed um, for competition? Um so I can speak from the brand and manufacturer standpoint. Um, I don't care right now. So there are a lot of folks out there trying to make some good money on propagating certified seed, becoming you know, seed geneticists, seed suppliers. Um, but you know, the truth is we need usable fiber now in order to create sellable products, generate revenue. So then we can spend money on R&D on, on getting U.S. certified seeds. So, you know, I know there's some risks involved with that, um, and there's a lot of huge headaches um, when you're not using certified seed. But would uh, it be beneficial to have more or do you lean more towards the exemption where those that are growing for a fiber or grain uh, crop would then be exempt from the testing that would you know, mitigate some of the risk back from the farmers because the risk of hot crop wouldn't be as, it, it's not the fear then if they're growing for grain and fiber. Um, I can't speak to grain because I don't know a lot about that. Um, sure. Yes, I mean, clearly I'm biased, um, but whatever we can do to reduce barriers to getting products out in the market, I'm going to be a supporter of. Um, now, this good yield. Right. I think that this is the big thing. Like we've got to have good yield and good outputs on whatever genetic that we're using. And so 
Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, but at the same time, I think the most important thing right now is just doing it and just getting any volume of usable fiber out of an acre um, and pushing it through to a final product. So, you know, <laughs> this is my first foray into CPG and as a startup founder. And, you know, so now I'm like talking to all these startup founders and they're very in the tech world. You have all their lingo. <laughs> so minimum viable product is a very popular word but it carries weight. So just do the simple thing now, get it started and do it. And then we can be working on optimizing and improving. So unfortunately right now, that does mean that there's a lot of uncertainty on profitability on farm, but you know, nothing's going to be profitable until we're actually selling products to the end user. Um, So that's the traction in my eyes, the most important traction that we need right now. I wanted to talk real quick about the state of the industry for feminine products, you know, and, and then bridging that gap specifically for the demand. Sure. Um, well, half of us menstruate, um, and we're heading into probably a recession and menstruation rates actually increase because birth rates go down, um, in times of recession. And we are seeing uh, tampon and pad shortages, um, So right now, all of these products are made from rayon, which is derived most commonly from tree pulp. Um, There are some products on market made with bamboo-based rayon um, or uh, conventional cotton, organic cotton. um, And then there are components in pads and tampons that are made from petroleum-derived plastics. Um, And now we're starting to see more and more bio-based plastics. Um, and recently, like just in the past couple of years, I've seen on market 100% bio-based plastic components like films and wrappers and stuff. Um, but, you know, we make tampons. So in our target market, the most popular tampons are made from organic cotton, but there is no hemp fiber tampon on market. So we do expect to be the first one for that. And we're really proud of that. Um, But the reason why there's been so little innovation um, just on materials in general is that tampons are a class two um, medical devices regulated by the FDA. And so our regulatory burden on producing a product is much higher than if we wanted to make a T-shirt out of hemp. And that affects our entire supply chain. So, you know, there's a lot of room for innovation and we really are counting on not being the only ones entering the menstrual hygiene space um, and really see the beginning of an entirely new product category where, you know, you'll go to the grocery store and now see an entire shelf dedicated to hemp fiber-based absorbent hygiene. The organic piece of hemp right? And the need for organic and or regenerative practices. Can you speak to that especially? And are you seeing that to be a challenge in hemp fiber that's coming in dirty or with contaminants? Sure. Um, Well, it's like the same question as before. Right now, I don't care. (laughs) Like, just give me hemp fiber we can use, and then we can always work towards that perfection. So progress, not perfection. Um, So before we get too caught up on making sure we have organic certified fiber, we just need fiber, period. Um, And for hygiene, 
you know, there is a misconception that we can accept like the lower grade or the waste material from textile production. It's not true. Um, You know, this is fiber we're putting into our bodies. And so our quality requirements and our purity requirements are actually higher um, than a lot of textile grade fiber. Um, So again, you know, we go through some special processes to where we're already having some chemical inputs that we take care of. Um, So I just need really high quality, beautiful fiber. Yes. To get at a meaningful volume. Um, And then we'll work towards organic certification. Now we'll say we have really, you know, surveyed and talked to our target customer and they, that certification stamps are not what matters most to our consumer telling the true story of how that material was made and where it came from. That's what they want to know. And these industry facing certifications back and forth, they're good for B2B and for larger corporations that really rest their laurels on that. But our customers um, don't care. That's a really good point. We actually just did an interview yesterday um, on our live broadcast with a, a marketing co-op that talks about this and the, hmm. need to tell the story behind in the hemp industry. And what does that look like? So collectively being able to come together to put together campaigns like the Got Milk campaign or the Sunkiss campaigns hmm. uh, really around story. Right. And really, yeah. Well, and of course, the challenge in hemp is that we have so much variety in what we're doing and how we're doing it and what products we're making. So like checkoff and marketing campaigns, you know, sometimes you have apples to oranges. And so how do you organize that and have a unified message? Um, But, you know, I mean, it's a good conversation to start, too, on certifications and how you want to do your farming Um, as it pertains to manufacturing. So if you want to produce fiber for an apparel or yarn manufacturer, or you're working with a brand um, that wants to work with you to create a fiber for their end use products, everybody's going to be a little bit different. And so you really have to approach it from the brand or the manufacturer's perspective. You know, we've worked with manufacturers who will not accept any fiber from a supply chain that's not got certified. You know, we have manufacturers that are just like, sure, bring it in. For those that don't know what GOTS is or got certified, can you talk about that real quick? Yeah. And um, I hope I get the acronym right. Is it Global Organic Textile Association or standard? Thanks. Olaf's here. <laughs> uh, well, and there was a question. Is that Olaf? Does he work with you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is Olaf. <laughs> Say hi, Olaf. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Olaf Isole. He is our head of strategic product development and chief technical officer and engineer in the um, hygiene space for a gajillion years. So we snagged him. <laughs> now he's the tampon connoisseur. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a really good technical guy. I work with him on the ASGM committee. I got a lot of respect for Olaf. He provides a lot of really good insight. So top awesome. note. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, about God, an interesting thing is that it is not a farm standard. So it is a supply chain standard. So this is where Trace, we really wanted to change the narrative in menstrual hygiene because a lot of brands, again, rest on, oh, well, we're got certified. That's as far as we need to go. Um, But that doesn't really take into account everything that happens on farm. Um, And in order to get got certified as a product, your entire supply chain 
from, you know, if we're talking about cotton, your cotton gin to your purification facility to, you know, whatever other treatment you need of your fiber also does need to be GOTS certified. So that's really important um, if you want to make a product to really know your consumer and what they need and what your final manufacturing partner needs and what they can accept into their system um, before you even start putting your supply chain together. That's great. This brings up another point. This morning we were talking about those not so common, you know, um, or uh, unpopular uh, partners, strategic partners, right? And paying attention, like you said, to each piece of that supply chain and what each of them need. Mm. Um, it just, I guess I bring this back around, right? Is it's not just the big picture. It's each of these little pieces that keeps coming up, being able to dive into yeah, to each side. Sorry, squirrel. No, no, it's all good. And all the conversations come back full circle and it's awesome. Yeah, well, it's true. And um, again, you know, it really does require a technical expertise on your final product and how your product is made because a lot of manufacturers haven't worked with hemp fiber before, or if they have, it's just kind of been an R and D lab scale, kind of getting their feet wet. Um, but you really have to partner together, um, as a brand and as a fiber supplier to, um, walk that development walk together. So one of the things I wanted to make sure did not get lost in this conversation is for instance, if you want to go make a fabric or you want to make a t-shirt, you have to understand what the dyers and finishers need, what the cut and sew operators need, what the um, mill, what the weavers or knitters need in their performance, what the spinner, how is your yarn produced? There's like a million different ways to make different kinds of yarns. And those kind of yarns will dictate what kind of fabric and what kind of garment you can make in the end. All of those moving pieces hinge on how the fiber was grown in the field, when it was harvested, what variety was used and how it was treated in the mechanical and, and sometimes chemical processing step. There is no like commoditized market for that right now. Like there is for cotton. We don't have the hundred years of farm data and technical textile development data in the U S like cotton does. So it requires communication and coordination with all of those people just to get your final product made. Awesome. There's a question right here. Do you have research on absorbent and allergen data comparing cotton and hemp? That is a great question because interestingly enough, my sister-in-law is really allergic to hemp. Like she can't even have hemp seed products. Um, which, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's just God making sure I stay humble. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't met anyone else allergic to hemp fiber. Uh, you know, hemp, uh, when it's nice and clean, it's a cellulosic that has lignans and pectins and hemicellulosis, um, which is the same as many other fibers and even foods that we eat. So, um, one of the things that we do have to do for our regulatory work is biocompatibility testing. Um, that is not complete yet. So if, <laughs> if we don't pass that, then we don't make a tampon. So, you know, it's definitely checking for cytotoxicity, reactivity, contact dermatitis. Um, and then of course, other bigger things like uh, carcinogenicity and if it affects any reproductive stuff. So we don't anticipate that. Now on um, absorbency data, 
yes, for sure. That is like our bread and butter. Um, and, you know, is important to bring to the conversation about fiber data and fiber analysis and fiber measurement. So I know a lot of the folks here are on this ASTM committee trying to develop um, standards for hemp fiber and even learning how to measure it. You know, what laboratory protocols, what equipment, you know, what instrumentation needs to be used. You would think, you know, me, I'm like totally ignorant to all of this. And so I'm like, oh, well, why can't we use cotton instrumentation in the same methodology? No, it doesn't work because it's a different fiber. So again, all of us here who are um, trying to create specific types of fiber for specific end uses are having to really create our own specifications and create our own protocol for knowing whether or not our fiber conforms to, to our needed spec. I wanted to talk, you had mentioned in our conversation before, what investors are looking for or buyers of your product are looking for as far as strategic plan and build of the business? Um, uh, well, it's changed over time. So, you know, I had this concept first in 2018 when there was, you know, no viability for it. And then according to the IRS, started it in 2020. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at that time, what was really hitting with investors was the need for cleaner products for our body, products that are better for the environment in high um, use areas. So, you know, things that are consumable, like FemCare products um, that we're using a lot of, that we need, that we're throwing away, re-engineering them with materials that are going to be better for us and the earth. Now what's hitting great with investors is supply chain. So now we're, you know, post pandemic world, we are all familiar with supply chain uncertainty and, you know, the real economic problems with that and business problems. So this is where I see hemp fiber having a totally unique and unfair advantage compared to other products and, and raw materials because by nature, because of everything I just said, how everyone has to be at the same table at the same time to get it pushed out. We have, you know, supply chains vertically integrated by nature. Um, and that does not happen in any other natural raw material right now that's being used. So we can leverage that. So because we have to know all of our moving pieces from farm to processor to um, refinement, to manufacturing, it bakes in some supply chain security uh, that has really been attracting investors. Um, we are not importing Chinese fiber. So that is really important to us. We are committed to using US grown hemp fiber. We have worked on validating some European supply chain, um, but our value proposition is that we're farm to body. So we want our customers to know exactly what they're putting in their vagina and how it got there. And in order for that to happen, we have to have full traceability down to the soil and transparency. Um, and that's almost impossible when you're working in a foreign country and in different governments that won't give you the access that you need for a full audit um, and for relationship building. Um, and then from a practical standpoint, you know, we like using regionalized supply chains because our logistics are easier. You have faster turns, lower costs. And then, of course, from an environmental standpoint, a smaller carbon footprint. So that's really important right now. 
um, because it's not like there's warehouses of, you know, thousands of tons of ready to go hemp fiber for you to be shipping everywhere and running different trials. Everything is small batch right now. Um, and so if you're having to move things across oceans, it just really slows down your product development and then you'll eat up too much cash in the meantime. So that's a great question. Um, but we are, like I said, using Chinese seed varietals um, that our farming partners and processing partners import. Like I said, data is so important. So, you know, right now, if I was a yarn spinner and I had a client that wanted to make a certain type of fabric, or if I was a tampon manufacturer and I had a, a client that wanted to make an organic cotton tampon, I could call the cotton merchant or I could call the fiber purification company and say, hey, I need to make this. Here is my specification. I need this length. I need this micronair or denier. I need this, you know, lignin content on a hemp fiber or whatever. You know, I need this tensile strength, et cetera. So that data set right now does not exist routinely for hemp fiber. And we've had to do a lot of that as a brand. Um, so that is something that I would like to see the fiber industry and hemp move towards is capacity to have that and deliver it with all samples. It's really important. Uh, well, and there's, there is definitely a lot of work being done here, but I think like you said, it's gathering the data and collecting it to what's out there and yeah, then making it uh -huh. accessible. So I would also encourage, I know for our fiber trials, we're going to be doing this is looking at the fiber production at each phase, um, you know, the herd versus fiber. And so that will be available next year for trial in our trial data. Um, but I would open this up. If there are specific things you guys are looking for um, that we can add to our protocols that would benefit the industry and benefit you on a large scale trial for fiber, um, please let us know because I'd love to add that in there. Claire, Guy. Okay. Awesome. I see there's lots of you on here doing this, Jennifer, Rusty. Yeah, sure. So um, from the hygiene side, you know, like I said, we have some additional parameters that we need to meet both on the performance characteristics, on the safety um, and on the supply chain that, you know, other types of fiber won't need. So, you know, we it's really important for us to test for heavy metals since we're putting it in people's bodies. Um, for any soil residues, um, pesticide, you know, fertilizer inputs, every single chemistry that touches our fiber, uh, we need to test for after it's been purified to ensure that it doesn't go into someone's body. So again, that's where traceability is really key. So we know what sort of treatments have happened on farm. Um, and we know that that farm history and, and what sort of facilities our processors have. So we know the risks. Um, and what we need to be um, de-risking. Um, if there's been any melt spinning trials using hemp for biodegradable, okay, polymers as a compound. Um, Olaf, I'm going to call phone a friend. Do you know if there's been any melt spinning? I mean, like including small fiber fragments in a melt and ex extrude that? Or, um, yeah, using hemp as uh, an input for a biopolymer, or yeah. I think if there's small parts, then it's too. Well, you can't. It has to be fine enough, right? And of course, the, the the channels and tubes through which it goes need to be bigger than the than the cross section of the length of the fibers. Mm -hmm. But work like that is being done. So I know that uh, there's a lot of work done on composites at in universities around the world. 
there are private companies that have done work on this one. There are patents that are filed on using um, often the smaller fibers that are in herd because we have the fibers not only in the bast on the outside of the hemp plant right in the stalk, but also in the herd itself. Um, and uh, well, the other way, of course, is also to use hemp or maybe in particular herd as a food source for bacteria, which digest it and turn that into a mo molecular component that can be turned into, into a polymer. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's possible as well, especially for something that's called polyhydroxyalkanoids, PHA. So that's a very popular and ascending type of plastic um, that's bio-based and biodegradable. So PHE, you will hear that a lot in the coming years. Hey, uh, this is Mansoor. Thanks for responding on that question. Uh, it's one of the areas where industry is trying to disrupt. Uh, I come from DuPont GE and uh, matter of fact, PHA. I don't know the name of this gentleman who spoke. Uh, it's very eloquent in that space. Yes, uh, PHA is one of the space, uh, but I believe with hemp, uh, you need a lot of pre-drying and pre-processing uh, to align that in with regards to microns and blend it into the conventional polymers to make it work. Mm -hmm. So I just want to know, has there been any trials done? It's good to know. Uh, appreciate your insight there. Thank you. I, I can jump in quick too, uh, Matthew. Uh, we are successfully filling orders in a hemp PHA for the cosmetics industry. So I can say that we have um, successfully uh, created a PHA hemp composite and we have successfully ejection molded it and there is product on the market too. I'm happy to share. Great. Oh, there was another one, Melt Swimming and Bio or Swimming. Melt spinning and biopolymers, yes. Um, cloths with fiber X also yeah. is info in there as well. Um, in the textile. Well, and so in the hygiene world, so many products are made from polyesters. So this is really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, a question too from, again, now I'm always thinking of the brand side and the consumer side and functionality is, you know, how does that affect product stability and what are the practical applications of that and why? Um, so I think that's an important question for us to always remember as we're going after new science and innovating is keeping in mind the why and how that is translated to consumer um, and what that um, profitability capacity is. Because, I mean, the truth is we have to make money in order for things to be sustainable. Um, so, you know, it's, it's nice to innovate for the sake of innovation. And I'm a scientist, so I love that. But also keeping in mind, um, what are the pain points of that in-use consumer and what's the market like? Oh, one thing that I saw and I wanted to talk about is the equipment. You know, you talked a little bit about the quality of the fiber coming off the different equipment, but can you talk about the initial decortication or processing and then maybe secondary processing that may be needed to get the fiber necessary that you're looking for? Sure. Um, well, you know, when I started, I was like, man, I know everything. Psych. <laughs> So, you know, our supply chain partners are here on this call and they are the experts and they're the ones that know how to do it the right way. Um, I mean, it has taken some feedback back and forth and tweaking and that's how we work together. Um, but I always say there's like 10 different ways to skin the cat. So there is no um, like on shelf standardized full kit end to end from decortication to final refinement and opening for hemp fiber for hygiene. So that is really important. <laughs> 
because all of these different pieces of equipment do need to be put together in a continuous kit, whether that's at different facilities or the same facility in order to get the right fiber. So our fibers have to be very individualized, extremely clean, fairly, um, you know, regular distribution of length and, and micronair, et cetera. You know, we can tolerate some things that the apparel industry can't on that distribution. Um, but, you know, we want to be treating the fiber very gently from decortication forward. So, you know, there are some products where you can just hammer the shit out of it, right? You know, you can grind it up, you can beat it to death. Um, and that's why that cultivation is so important to us. So we need fiber that the herd falls off very easily. So that way we can get nice, clean fiber without having to beat it to death. Because every time you touch that fiber, it shortens it, it creates kinks in it, it weakens the fiber. And that'll affect for us, for tampons, when it goes through the tampon manufacturing process, through its final card and put into a strip, it's really important to achieve the cohesion properties that we need and and the, the tear strength that we need in order to make sure our tampon doesn't like break in the middle of its continual manufacturing. And it's the same for yarn. You'll learn more about that from the talk next week. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So just to like give a high level, we do of course require decortication and some cleaning, um, step cleaning after that. Our fibers are chemically processed um, and then they do have to be refined after that mechanically. So that is a really critical step that I think a lot of folks forget about after the degumming um, that you, you do need to mechanically open it and individualize it further, um, especially for our product. Mm. And then of course, we've got a very special extra step where we gamma radiate our fibers (laughs) um, to make sure that they're nice and pure and safe for our users. Clean. Yeah. Okay. So this is that extra, obviously, step that's not necessarily um, a piece of, for building materials and or biocomposites is the extra clean. Okay. Well, are there any other questions? I could keep talking and let you keep talking if you have anything else you want to add, Claire. Yeah, I'll um, just add some high level advice for anyone looking to make a fiber product is to get to know your manufacturers and gain some technical knowledge or partner up with somebody who has the technical knowledge. So, you know, there are a lot of ways to do this. You can, you know, recruit partners, enroll in some classes um, at a university that is relevant to the industry you wanna be selling into, go to conferences and meet the existing manufacturers and learn, you know, figure out what they need, you know, what is their motivation? What is their corporate vision? What are their market drivers? Because that's going to tell you their readiness to go on this innovation journey with you. Um, Because manufacturing, it takes a lot of resource. You know, for us, our manufacturers have to shut down their entire line in order to run our material, in order to make our product. Then they have to clean it out before they can pick up the production from the next client. And they have to do that every time we run a trial. Um, So for us, you know, vetting manufacturers that were willing to go that extra step was critical in the beginning. I did see a question um, that asked if we were going to be applicator free or with an applicator. We are launching applicator free. So that was very specific for two different reasons. 
um, when we, you know, first started this and started doing exploration on applicator and the manufacturing requirements of an applicator from a technical perspective on like performance characteristics and um, strength and, and durability and integrity, um, the state of the art on the hemp plastic side wasn't where it needed to be. Now, of course, um, we've grown leaps and bounds over the past several years. So I do think that there will be an opportunity for us to introduce a, a hemp-based applicator. But we made the choice to launch with an applicator-free version over a bio-based plastic that's um, blended with petroleum. So we have a commitment in our brand never to use any petroleum inputs. And the only bio-based applicators that are available right now are like a blend. So the lowest blend is 90% bio-based, 10% virgin plastic. And that just felt like we were watering down our, our value proposition. And our you know early adopters, they're the ones that are interested in using menstrual cups and reusable pads and underwear. Those folks, we're already used to touching our vulvas. <laughs> um, so... And the other part is there's only one applicator-free tampon available on shelf in the U.S. today. So I think there's a lot of room for growth as, you know, Gen Zs and younger millennials become more comfortable with their periods. It's probably more than you bargained for with that question. <laughs> Can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm a woman, so I've been using applicator-free OB tampons forever. But then with, you know, the amount of costs switched to cups, years and years ago. So I've been, that's why I was asking, like, what are the differences, you know, like cotton allergies versus hemp allergies, defoliant residues that they use in cotton industry. Yeah. Cause I also work in agriculture. Now I'm a botanist and I study plant medicine cool. and I want to develop products. So that's why, you know, yeah, I want to do all kinds of things, but you know, funding, funding, funding anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's why I was asking about the applicator. And I thought about like, you know, uh, cardboard based applicators, but then you could do hemp based applicators. I didn't know what you were thinking. So I went to the website. I saw it. But yeah, I'm, well, thank you. I do have friends that will not use applicator free products. So, yeah. you know, so they get really weirded out by it. And I'm like, it's, it's <laughs> not that strange, people. Well, about 50% of our early adopters need an applicator. So again, we had to kind of make that judgment call. Um, but I love what you're doing and your knowledge on the things we have to think about as an end product on what happens on farm. So, you know, we do source our cotton direct from farm too. So knowing what defoliant they use, you know, making sure they're working towards a steam defoliant process, which is just, you know, super expensive. Why well, a lot of people don't do it, but um, that's really important. And the interesting thing too, that we're, you know, it's kind of getting in the weeds, but reusable menstrual products for all of the non-menstruators here, like menstrual cups um, and menstrual underwear are not FDA regulated. So they do not have to go through the same um, pre-market approval process that tampons do. Even menstrual cups that are indwelling in the vagina do not require that process. So as a women's health NP, that's very concerning to me. Um, and you know, there's some folks in the textile world here, fabrics have dyes and finishes on them and a common finish for making a fabric waterproof or water resistance are PFAS chemicals. 
um, which have been linked to infertility issues, their hormone disrupting chemicals. There's some question about carcinogenicity of it, you know, causing cancer. Um, and it's controversial right now. You know, there's campaigns to try and get that eliminated from our textile finishing world. Um, but that's used in, in menstrual underwear right now. So, you know, there's a lot of room for innovation in that mindset, Jennifer, um, to incorporate healthier materials into the products that we put on and in our bodies. There was another question too, I saw about the, the financial side of, you know, building your model or building a model and getting into the industry. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I actually just sent this in an email to somebody earlier this morning. So the task at hand is finding the clients that are willing to pay what it takes to get hemp fiber into their products. So, you know, there are some mindsets of kind of a race to the bottom that, oh my gosh, well, we, if we can't compete with polyester, that's just a no-go and the barrier to entry won't, won't be there. That's not true. There are brands that are actively seeking hemp fiber integration and who are willing to eat that lower margin in order to get traction to make that happen. As a processor or a merchandiser of that fiber, it is your job to go out and find those people and really, you know, maximize value. So that's like business 101, do not diminish your value. You can always discount, but it's really hard to raise the price, right? <laughs> so, you know, this is still premium product with hemp fiber, no matter what your hemp fiber is going into. So it can tolerate a higher price how do you find them hustling, Brian? <laughs> um, showing up to those conferences and asking for meetings and being very proactive um, and understanding market drivers too. So, you know, subscribing to Sourcing Journal, um, subscribing to the hygiene journals and learning what manufacturers and brands are, are looking for and then call them up. I found our manufacturer because I stalked them on LinkedIn and their number was not published. So, you know, you just have to have to hustle that. So in terms of competitiveness, um, I really, you know, don't even like having a conversation with polyester and hemp in the same sentence. It's really natural fibers versus synthetic fibers. And that's where our value proposition comes in. And another case for um, combining with other fibers. So, you know, hemp is a complement to cotton. I will never, ever, you know, advocate for hemp replacing cotton. I mean, there's a lot of um, movement and improvement in cotton cultivation to bring it up to snuff to our environmental standards too. So again, like blending it down makes the cost more tolerable to the end-use consumer and the brand. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not really seeing um, barriers to entry based on cost um, unless you're focused on high volume. That's different. When you're focused on high, like super commoditized volume, the type of um, customers that want commoditized volume want commoditized prices. Is there a crossover in product development from women's hygiene products and infant products like diapers? Yeah, absolutely. So did that make Olaf's ears perk up? So <laughs> Olaf did diaper development for a long time. Um, and, you know, both of us spoke at the hygiene conference last fall, which is like the baby diaper mecca. Um, so yes, there are components that are used in menstrual hygiene products that are also used in baby diapers and there are raw materials used in baby diapers that can be replaced with hemp based feedstocks and hemp fibers. 
Um, baby diapers right now are a commoditized product. It's a super, super high, high volume um, industry. Um, so we're not seeing as much <coughs> entry of lifestyle brands as we are on the menstrual product side. Um, but like in Asia, there's like 2000 different brands of baby diapers. So I know there are some folks looking at what the potential is for hemp fiber in baby diapers. But again, there's that critical mass. So what is the minimum volume that a manufacturer or brand is willing to play with? Um, and what's going to be worth the squeeze on integrating hemp fiber into that product? And what's the why? You know, what's the driver? Would a, a customer that is used to using a hemp a fabric reusable diaper insert, that's super common, are they willing to use a disposable diaper because it has hemp fiber in it? And what are the technical benefits of using hemp fiber in a baby diaper? Yeah, cloth diapers. So I was talking about disposable and not reusable <coughs> diapers, um, that there's a lot of overlap. So like a converter who's making a non-woven for one of our products can also sell that same non-woven to a diaper manufacturer. Um, or you can tweak it and put different finishes on it and different engineering of the non-woven um, with the same hemp fiber to make it function for the baby diaper versus a menstrual product. So yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Awesome. 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 You know, a great way for us to get out and find buyers outside of our industry is getting into their conferences. Like you said, you know, the diaper Mecca, but entering or the hygiene conference entering conferences where there are multiple buyers who would be potential users or manufacturers of your product, right? And, and being able to penetrate that way. And that's one thing we've talked about at the association is almost putting together a road show where we can create a floor map to be represent, representative of our industry at existing trade shows that have mm -hmm. thousands of people, right? So we can kind of yeah. into our industry. So if you guys are interested in doing that, I have started to put together a pretty robust list of events in construction and building materials, um, biocomposites, auto industry, energy sector, um, just to kind of see, you know, how do we reach out and bring those buyers into our industry and into our, our processors. And so, well, on the, on the hemp or on the hygiene side, um, yeah. the organization INDA, INDA, that is the premier group in North America. They have fabulous conferences that are technical, but there is always business happening the whole time. So, you know, manufacturers always have a conference room rented out and are looking to fill their meeting schedule and we'll take meetings from you. Um, and our last um, hygiene meeting, there were two different discussions on hemp fiber specifically, um, but only one supplier. Oh my God. So, so yeah, I think there's a lot of room. Right. And Inda also does um, trainings. So like you want to go make a baby diaper out of hemp, you can actually do a diaper manufacturing training module. That's like two or three days in North oh, Carolina. Um, or you can do a shortened version before one of the conferences for like 500 bucks. So highly recommend. That's a great, well, and again, it speaks back, right? Put yourself in the middle of where your buyers are and your, the conversations are so that you can be that expert in your industry. And mm -hmm. like you said, be the supplier to all of these guys. Mm -hmm. um, so great questions. If there's anything else, like I said, please don't hesitate to reach out. Claire, do you have anything else you want to add before we hang up? No, just thank you. Absolutely. I sure appreciate you. Thank you everybody for Bye -bye, joining. Bye, Olaf.